0: For many leaders, achievement drives both our work and our lives, but sometimes it can get in the way of what matters most. On this episode, Michael Hyatt returns to show us how high achievers can begin to find balance. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 522. Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. So many of us, as leaders, tend to be the high achieving types. We are driven, not just by others, but actually, we're driven so much internally to do the best possible work we can for ourselves for others, and for our organizations. And that's a wonderful, wonderful, uh, positive trait, and yet is a trait that can get in our way of really finding the balance that so many of us want to not only win at work, but to succeed at life. Today, I'm so glad to welcome back to the show an expert who's going to help us to navigate this better. So pleased to welcome Michael Hyatt. He is the founder and chairman of Michael Hyatt & Company, which helps leaders get the focus they need to win at work and succeed at life. Formerly chairman and CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishers, Michael is also the creator of The Full Focus Planner and a New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today bestselling author of several books, including Free to Focus, Your Best Year Ever, Living Forward, and Platform. His work has been featured by the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Fast Company, Business Week, Entrepreneur, and many other publications. He is the author, with his daughter, Megan Hyatt, who's now CEO of their company, of Win at Work and Succeed at Life, Five Principles to Free Yourself from the Cult of Overwork. Michael, always a pleasure to talk to you. Welcome back. Thanks, Dave. Great to be with you. The title of this book, Win at Work and Succeed at Life, Of all the people who have a public presence in the world and on the internet and lead organizations, you seem to be both really intentional about that balance in your language, but my sense is that you really execute on that well. And yet, when you read this book, you realize, coming away as a reader, that that wasn't always the case for you. Looking back, when did you realize that the succeed at life piece wasn't clicking for you as much as it should?
1: Yeah, well, we open this story in the book. I tell the story of actually making that discovery and sort of the revelation that, yeah, I was winning at work, but I wasn't succeeding at life. But this was back in about the year 2001. And in the year 2000, I'd become a general manager for one of Thomas Nelson Publishers' 14 book publishing divisions. And this particular division they gave me responsibility for was dead last in every single metric. So it was, you know, it was losing money. It was shrinking employee morale was terrible. And so the CEO asked me if I could turn it around. And I said, yeah, you know, I I think I can. And he said, how long is it going to take you? And I picked a number out of the air. I said, about three years. And he said, great. That's kind of what I was thinking. So have at it. So I rolled up my sleeves, went back to my team, shared with them this vision of turning this division around and going from number 14 to number one. And Dave, we were able to do it. I mean, we worked really hard. We sacrificed nights, weekends, vacations, everything, but we turned it around. Not in 36 months, but in 18 months, we went from number 14 to number one. Wow! And so that resulted in me getting the biggest bonus check I'd ever gotten in my career. It was more than my annual salary, and I could not wait to get home to share it with my wife, Gail, because she's always been my biggest cheerleader. I knew she'd be thrilled, and I was, you know, super exa- excited as I bounced through the front door and unfurled the check and say, "Look, what do you think?" Well, she was kind of less than her usual, enthusiastic self. And she said those, those words that probably every spouse, particularly husbands hate to hear. She said, um, we need to talk. I knew, Mm. I knew that wasn't going to be good. So we went into the den and sat down and she began to tear up just a little bit. And she said, you know, she said, I love you. And I appreciate everything that you do for our family. I appreciate that you work hard, but I just got to tell you, you know, you're never home. And even when you are You're not really here. Well, that was like a gut kick for me. And then and then she said, you know, she said, your five daughters desperately need you right now. And then she began to cry. And she said, you know, honestly, I feel like a single mom. So here I was, Dave, thinking I'd reached the pinnacle of success. But what I realized in that moment was that it was a false summit. That yeah, I was winning at work, but I wasn't succeeding at life. And I'd pretty much sacrificed my health and my family on the altar of my ambition. And I realized right then and there that something had to change. What did change after that conversation? Well, I think just awareness was the first thing. And and I knew that what I was doing was not sustainable. And I I did what a lot of people do. And that is that I had convinced myself that my situation was temporary. Mm. And so I said, you know, as soon as I get acclimated to this job, then I'll give you, speaking to my wife, Gail, I'll give you and the girls the time and attention you deserve, And then maybe somebody on my executive team would resign, and I'd say, "Well, look, now I'm working two jobs. Once I get this position hired, things will settle down, and I'll give you guys the time and attention you deserve. And so for years, I literally did that. so i I knew that something radical had to change. So the first thing I did was I hired an executive coach, and so i I was at the time I was john Maxwell's publisher. And so I asked John for a recommendation and he referred me to Daniel Harkavy. So Daniel became my coach and Daniel said to me, he said, you know, I kind of explained the situation and he, and he, we did a couple of things. We put together a life plan. I realized for, I think the first time in a super conscious, intentional way that life was more than work. There were multiple domains or multiple life accounts that needed to be addressed. And then one of the things he did for me, and it's one of the principles that Megan and I talk about in this book is the power of constraint to give you freedom, productivity, and creativity. So he said to me, he said, my guess is that you don't have any boundaries on your work. Am I right? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, my guess is probably the afternoon. If you think you're not going to finish a project, you say to yourself, no problem. I'll go home, eat a quick bite with the family, crack open my laptop, and I'll resume work. Is that right? I said, that's exactly what I do. And he said, or if you get to the end of the week and you're not quite done, you think, well, I'll work on Saturday morning or Sunday afternoon and knock it out and probably even drag work into vacations. I said, that's exactly me. Mm -hmm. So he said, we need some constraints. So he said, what I want you to do is to set a time that you're willing to finish work each day. And that means closing your laptop and not opening it again. So I said, okay, well, I'm willing to do 6 PM. He said, okay, great. What about weekends? And I said, I'm, willing, and this was a tough one, I'm willing to not work on the weekends and vacations. He said, great. He said, so that I'm sure you won't mind if I periodically check in with Gail and have a conversation with her about how you're doing. Well, that suddenly made it real, uh. you know, so just that accountability was fantastic. But then what happened was every day became kind of like that Friday before you go on vacation. When you're so unbelievably productive because you have a hard stop. You've got a constraint. You're flying out on your vacation. So you cram all this work into that day because there's no backup plan. You just can't, you know, do it sometime some of the time. And that's that's how work became for me.
0: One of the key principles that you make in this book is that there's incredible power in non-achievement. And you and Megan highlight two different leisure modes that a lot of people tend to fall into. And one of them, and I'm quoting you both here, you say, we take time off, feel weird, uneasy, and distractible, and then settle into something more comfortable, email, a spreadsheet, whatever. Or secondly, exhausted by our work hours, we struggle to engage with more meaningful pastimes and opt for thumbing down the bottomless feet of Instagram or vegging out while watching Netflix, what auto plays us into oblivion. And I think we've all experienced that before, and I've certainly heard others experience that too. What is better than one of those two
1: default settings? Yeah well, I think you know just to first acknowledge you know that that many of us in today's work world are achievers. you know I myself I'm an Enneagram three, which is the achiever, so for those that 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 assessment means something to, you'll understand where I'm coming from on the Gallup Strength Finders or Clifton Strength Finders, Achiever is my number one strength. And so for years, for decades, really, I I felt like that my value, my identity, my sense of self-worth came from achieving. And so kind of like you were saying there, and as we talk about in the book, you know, it's really easy for me and for a lot of people like me to drift back into work when they're not working, because first of all, work's fun. And especially if you're doing something you love. And I I talk to people all the time that say, my work is my hobby. I don't need another hobby. My work's my hobby. Yeah, We're talking about non-achievement. We're talking about something other than that. But we drift back into it because, and I think it's important to understand the psychological reasons for this, but work is something that's measurable, where we get a sense of progress, where we get rewards and accolades and pats on the back and all this social reinforcement that kind of keeps us, sort of in that rut. And you don't get that from these non-achievement activities. And of course, the other one is when you check out, you're just, like you said, scrolling endlessly your feet or whatever. That's not restorative. And so what we found and what the research shows is that people really do need avocational pursuits, things that come alongside or are parallel to their vocation that are, that are things that are restorative, you know, like a hobby. And most of us probably had hobbies growing up. You know, me, it was music. I played the guitar and I played the piano. And then when I got serious about my career and decided I wasn't going to be a musician professionally, then I just kind of set that aside and didn't pursue it until about 10 years ago when I bought a new guitar and took up the Native American flute. And now I'm back. I've learned to fly fish and bass fish and some of those kind of things. But I find those enormously restoring uh, to my soul because it's something positive positive. Something where I can grow and learn. But it's not exactly stuff that I would, you know, put on a to do list and check off. It's just stuff that, that makes me, I think, a more interesting person, a more productive person, a more creative person. So that when I do return to work, that I'm the best version of myself. I'm not strung out, burned out. You know, I'm, I'm ready to get at it again because I've had this restorative time.
0: You cite the work of Mihai Chingsent Mihai, who uh, is many of our audience will know is the. Uh, really the psychologist behind the concept of flow. And he says that the trick is doing something that takes you out of your work context and plunges you into something altogether different. And it it was interesting reading through some of the studies you cite in the book, because one of them says spending more time on a hobby can boost people's confidence and their ability to perform their job well. And, And this is the kicker for me. As long as the hobby isn't similar to your profession. And I'm thinking about what you just said of a lot of times you do hear people say, and I feel like I've said this before too, like, well, my hobby is kind
1: of my work. And yet the research
0: shows something different, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it really does. And that doesn't really count. You know what the research shows that once you get above about 50 to 55 hours, you don't gain any more productivity. And in fact, the research shows that the most creative artists, scientists, the people that are the most productive are really only working 46 hours a day and they do other things. And one of the things that many of them have in common is they walk, you know, they go on long walks and walking, fishing, playing a musical instrument, doing something outdoors. One of the things or something that those all have in common, it's like a friend of mine used to say about fishing. He said, you're doing something, but you ain't doing much. You know, it's just enough enough to get your mind off work that, that requires some focus and concentration, but it's a non-achievement, non-work-related activity. And that's what gives your mind the ability to relax. And just like when you're in the gym, you know, you're working out on weights, you're, you're not actually building muscle. What you're doing is you're tearing down muscle in the gym and you need that rest in order to rebuild the muscle. But that's where the the, the muscle is rebuilt is in the rest. And the same thing here, you know, we need that, that time for our mind to not be just, you know, go, 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 but a time to relax. And it's in those moments that oftentimes we get the the best breakthrough ideas when we're not really focused on trying to do it.
0: You're really a champion in the book for encouraging all of us to do something like that, to take on a hobby. And you you make the point also, which I appreciate that especially with folks who tend to be high achievers, sometimes taking on a hobby is a bit of a struggle. Because you are becoming a beginner again. And a lot of us, especially the folks in our listening community who've gotten good at their work, they're used to having success in a lot of areas. Then taking on something like guitar or fishing that maybe they've never done before, you really do have to be a beginner. And that's a big obstacle,
1: isn't it? It is, but it's a wonderful attribute to cultivate. Because even in our primary work, you know, knowledge is often the enemy of mastery. So we, we think that we know something and we don't have anything left to learn, so we don't approach it as a beginner. And as a result of that, we miss a lot of opportunities to grow and, and to create the kind of breakthroughs that only happen when we see something afresh. You know, one of the things I do in my coaching programs, I've, I've been in coaching programs where it's, you know, everybody from the same industry is in the coaching program. And what I found is, and we intentionally try to do this with our programs, is have a diverse group of industries because often the breakthroughs come from outside your industry from people that don't wear the same blinders who from people that are approaching your business and offering advice based on a beginner perspective you know they see sometimes the things that are obvious to them but that we miss and working through a hobby developing a hobby cultivating that sense of what is it what is it like to begin at the very beginning and then to systematically begin to grow and to learn and develop mastery. You know, it's it's kind of a life skill that can be attributed or can be applied to a a lot of different areas, but we kind of need that that place like a hobby to rediscover it again.
0: It's interesting you say that. Uh, uh, our academy groups, we bring people together from all different industries just like you do, and I often tell people that the disadvantage is we start slower. It takes more time for us to get to know each other and understand context, but in the long run, that ends up being a plus. And for the exact reason that you just said, is people ask the questions that a novice would ask in their industry. And sometimes that's exactly the question that someone needs to hear. And I'm hearing you make this point of recognizing the value of being a beginner. I think sometimes we think of that as an obstacle and a struggle. And yet, if we can reframe that in our minds a bit to say, actually... Having the mindset of being a beginner and having that experience of being a beginner at something opens up new perspectives in a way that you don't hear if you're just surrounded by the people who are thinking and have the same expertise that you do.
1: Well, and that's exactly right because usually breakthroughs happen when we begin to question assumptions. And the problem is, we're often blind to our assumptions. You know, we have these limiting beliefs that that we're not even aware of limiting beliefs because they're just part of how we think about our business. And you you often hear this in meetings and businesses where people say things like, well, that's not how we do it here. Or we tried that once, or that just doesn't work in our industry. And I, I remember particularly one client that I had that was a financial advisor, and he really wanted a podcast, but he knew that that would be a great way to acquire new clients. But he said to me, we can't do that in our industry because of the constraints that come with compliance. Well, meanwhile, I had three other clients, financial advisors, who had totally gotten around that and are still podcasting today, generating hundreds and hundreds of clients, very successful businesses, because they didn't operate from the same assumption. And so the the, the way that I coached him is I said, well, do you know for a fact that you can do that? Or is that just something you assume? And he said, well, I guess, I guess I'm assuming. I said, yeah. And that's the problem that all of us have is we assume certain things. When I was running Thomas Nelson, when I was the CEO of that organization, we were publicly held, and I had the attorneys come to me, and they said, "You can't blog, you know, because you're going to be in violation of selective disclosure law. People could trade on that information, and you know, you're going to end up in a orange jumpsuit in a federal prison if you do that." And I said, "Wait a second, I'm not so sure that's true." And so I just I questioned that assumption, and I I said, "If I'm writing and I'm disclosing the same thing in a public." format, like a blog, everybody has access to the information at the same time. How can that be selective disclosure? And they said, wow, well, we didn't think about that. Hmm. And so they said, go ahead and blog. And I did, you know, for years. And that's how I started the business that I'm in now. But, but it oftentimes takes that, that beginner's mindset to question the assumptions, to create the breakthrough that really levels up our business and our life.
0: Like so many things, starting something new is often the real challenge is just getting started, right? And finding that thing. And you've been down this journey a bit where you have discovered some things that have really taken on new life as a hobby and and helped really cultivate new thinking for you. For those who are maybe thinking about this for the first time, what did you find that was helpful for you in finding what that thing is, where that you should lean in on
1: that maybe you hadn't thought about before. Dave, I would say first and foremost, pay attention to your heart. What are you drawn to? You know, like I've I've always loved music. I was a music minor in college. I intended to be a professional musician and then kind of set it aside because I thought, you know, I couldn't see myself making a living at it. It was just too competitive, and I live in Nashville, Tennessee, which, you know, we've got incredible musicians waiting tables here. So there's not enough work for them. But still, for years, for decades, that still resonated with me when I hear a piece of music, you know, I would just get lost in it, swept up in it. For other people, it might be art. You know, my my wife picked up painting, you know, about 10 years ago. So, you know, she turned 50 and she decided that uh, she wanted to learn how to paint, didn't have any experience, but was drawn to beautiful art. So I, I think just paying attention to, you know, what interests you. Maybe it's you'll enjoy being outdoors, or maybe you have fond memories of fishing with your dad or your mom, mom when you're, you were young and you kind of want to get that. And I had that same ex, exact experience. I fished a lot with my dad when, he was, when I was young and then he got busy, I got busy, we didn't do it. And then I rediscovered it, you know, later in life and just have found immense joy in it. So any kind of water sports now, I absolutely love. So yeah, I would start just, you know, looking inward and say, you know, what am I drawn to? What can I do if I was going to have a hobby? What would it be? And then just try it.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like some of them were from things that were from long ago when you were a kid, and those interests. I I think about some of my hobbies, and the same uh, thing—that if you're willing to stop and do a little bit of thinking on that, it really, really does help to uncover what that, what that next thing may be.
1: Yeah, it does. And you know, one that was adjacent for me—I took a Native American flute playing about five years ago. So that was a musical thing, but I never played any kind of woodwind instrument or anything. But I thought, you know, I really enjoy listening to this as something soothing. So I bought a flute. And, you know, usually my practice is whenever I start a new hobby, I'm going to try to find somebody that can help me get to the point of satisfaction faster and easier. So I really believe in guides. I really believe in instructors, coaches, you know, whatever it is you're trying to do, there's probably somebody that knows how to do it and has figured out the shortcuts and how to get the greatest amount of satisfaction in the fastest amount of time. And, and not that, again, you're trying to achieve something here, but it's just, you know, there's, there's a lot of pain early on in any hobby. And the sooner you can start seeing some progress, the faster you enjoy it. I'm glad you mentioned the word pain.
0: I've taken up guitar again recently, and it is both joyful and painful, figuratively and literally on my fingers. And the word that's also come up for me a lot is empathy. And I say that because there's a lot of places where I get the privilege to play in and work in that I'm I've had a lot of experience in it and I'm pretty good at. And it's really humbling to be a beginner at something again and to go through that pain. And I think particularly about the people that a lot of us have the privilege to influence in our community that having that experience and realizing how difficult it is to mm-hmm. be a beginner and be reminded of that especially as you're leading people that is so it's 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 a struggle, but it's also so rewarding to really put yourself back in that place. And I find for me to have the empathy of, oh, yeah, this may come easy for me, but for the next person, they're having the experience with this particular thing I'm good at that I'm having in this painful experience of yeah. learning guitar for the first time.
1: Well, that's really good. And that's really true because you know so many things that we do that we're really good at in our profession has just become muscle memory. You know, We don't really think about it. We don't have to think about it. And then we're a little surprised when other people can't pick it up. But you're, like you said, you know, picking up a hobby and starting at the very beginning does give you that empathy and realize that everybody is a beginner somewhere. Everybody starts somewhere. And, and one of the things about a beginner's mind that I like, and it's particularly helpful in business, but you can learn this from a hobby, is that you, know, you don't have to unlearn things. And and I find that the most difficult coaching clients that I work with are the ones that, that think they know something because they learned it a certain way and they have to unlearn it before they can learn it a new way. And with beginner's mind, you just, you know, you realize, hey, the way that I do it just happens to be a way. Probably there's a lot of ways to get this done, but this is just one way. And I insist with my employees, I insist with the people I work with, I'm not so much focused on how you get it done, as that you deliver the result there's probably a lot of different ways to do this as long as you get the result it's okay
0: i want to ask you about something else that you highlight in the book and i think that this really speaks to high achievers as well and just how they think about work is you know many of us are surrounded by people all day long relationships are a big part of our work and yet i think we tend to think about that as a proxy for friendships and when i think about non-achievement and some of the things that you and Megan talk a lot about in the book, that the importance of friendships. And you write at one point in the book, sadly, I didn't really have any close personal friends until about seven years ago. I hate to admit that. I had colleagues at work, but they were acquaintances, people I had a professional relationship with that I mistook for friendship. And I'm curious, as you've extended friendships outside of work in these last seven years, what's been different for you and what's different about those relationships today
1: well because we don't have a work in common we have to have or have to find or discover other areas of commonality you know so that we have shared rapport and so that we have a basis for the friendship but i think the the thing that happened to me at work was that because we had the advantage of proximity you know, we're working together every day, all day because of the, had the advantage of working on the same projects together. There was that sort of natural affinity that would lead you to believe. And certainly there were friendly relationships and there's nothing, I don't mean to make this wrong. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just that when I left Thomas Nelson in 2011, people that I was working with every single day that I was spending more time with than I was spending with my family. I mean, it's just the nature of work, right? Mm-hmm. But what I discovered was that when I left the company, those friendships went away. You know, those people were busy. Nobody was malicious. Nobody intended to be that way. But I but I wasn't that intentional. I didn't reach back out to those people. They didn't reach out to me. They were just another chapter that, you know, I'd completed in my life and were behind me. Whereas the kind of friendships that I've been intentional to cultivate now have, you know, survived the transition of all kinds of life events, whether it was the death of a spouse or somebody changing their career or whatever, but we had to find that thing that we shared in common. Maybe it was a worldview or a particular perspective or hobbies, you know, but we have something that we could share that gave us the ability to transcend, you know, sort of that advantage of proximity that we didn't have to have.
0: How has that been most helpful
1: to you during this time of growing your own business? I think just to to feel supported and to feel like my identity is not all about my work, that uh-huh. I've got multiple sources that I can root my identity in and multiple domains of life that I can build as a foundation for my life. And one of the problems that you have when you've built your life on a single domain like work is that if something happens to that work, if it suddenly goes away, you lose your job or you have to you know, close your business or you make another transition, A lot of people find that very difficult emotionally, but if you've got a thriving marriage, if you have kids that you love and talk to, if you've got friends that you can enjoy being around, even though you don't have work projects in common, then all of a sudden your identity is much more stable. You know, your sense of well-being is more stable because all these other areas of your life are working when one may falter. And it may not be work it may maybe something else, maybe your health falters or whatever. But the more invested you could be in multiple domains, it's a little bit like uh, risk management when it comes to your finances and investing in a portfolio of stocks, as opposed to going all in on one stock. Mm.
0: And there's so much of this book. And by the way, I appreciate in all your work, but especially this book, how much you talk about your own struggles. And Megan shares her struggles in this book as well. And I hear so much wisdom in your work. And the underlying current of of this book, especially for me, is a lot of heart in how you've Mm. approached this. Thank you. When you think about heart, what's different in your heart today that maybe
1: wasn't five or 10 years ago? Well, first and foremost, I'm conscious of it. (laughs) You know, I really, I, I mean, it sounds like such a soft thing you know, or such a thing that we don't talk about in a business context. And yet I think really our heart, and by that I mean more than our physical heart or our mind, but just the whole, you know, interior life. You know, I'm so aware of that today. And I realized that that when I lead with my heart, everything goes better. You know, I find that people naturally will gravitate toward me, will naturally want to work with me, much more so than back when I would Used to kind of lead with my brain or with ideas or thoughts. And I just think that the heart is probably the leader's best, but probably least tapped into tool. And I think if we could become more aware of it and lead from the heart and really enrich our heart and cultivate our heart through various disciplines, I think the better off we are and the more contribution we can make to our teams and to the world.
0: What's something you've done as a leader that? really now comes through that lens of heart that, you know, maybe you would have done differently in the past?
1: Well, I think w- one of the things is really to notice and esteem other people. I, I think, you know, I would occasionally in the past notice when somebody did something right. And if I thought about it, you know, I might even express it. And and now I really try to do that all the time, to really see people so that they th- so that they feel seen, to notice them, to say out loud, you know what I'm thinking, you know, in a positive way, to commend them for their work, to encourage them, to listen. I think I think I'm a much better listener today. But by the way, this didn't come easy to me, because I think it was so easy, even inside my family, to resort to CEO mode, and just you know, sort of be in that mode where, okay, tell me your problem, let me fix it. We got to get on with things. And now, and I think this is one of the reasons God gave me five daughters, yeah. is um, I've learned better, and I'm still learning, but I've learned better to listen and to just kind of hold space for people without feeling like I need to fix them. And I find that whether it's my coaching clients or it's my family or it's my friends, that all by itself is hugely helpful and restorative to them. You know, usually they don't need my advice. What they just need is, you know, a listening ear, a listening heart, and some acknowledgement, you know, that they matter and that they're
0: going to get through this. Thanks for sharing that. I'm thinking even too of some of the structural things that you and Megan have done with the business. You mentioned in the book that when the pandemic started of making the shift to, as an organization, working, I believe it was six hours a day instead of an eight-hour work week. you know, It really strikes me as, yes, that's a tactical decision in a way, but really driven by heart of what do people need right now. And it also resulted in something wonderful for the organization.
1: Yeah, it did. So back toward the end of March in 2020, just a few weeks after the pandemic began, we realized that our young employees who had small children at home suddenly had no daycare. They had no school for their kids. And, you know, they were just scrambling, trying to make it all work and try to be productive at work and not, not quite sure how that was all going to fit together. And so we decided as an experiment that we were going to move from an eight-hour work day to a six-hour work day. And so we did that. And we tried it for two weeks. And I said, look, guys, if we're going to continue this, we got to still stay productive because I am i don't want to revise the goal at this point or revise our budget. So everybody was all in. After two weeks, we said, man, we can't tell any difference. I mean, we're get, still get it all done. Huh. So we said, well, let's try it for another month. And then we said, let's try it through the summer. And so then finally in September, we said, you know, this is amazing. We think we're actually, and this is counterintuitive, but we think we're actually more productive now than we were back when we had a longer workday. It's forcing us to prioritize, it's forcing us to make better decisions. And so we made it a permanent benefit for the employees of our company. But here's the surprising thing for us, Dave, is that we finished 2020 on the bottom line 101% ahead. Of the prior year, and we were already enormously profitable, and we were 50% ahead of our budget. Wow! And we think that it was directly related to this constraint that we put on ourselves and on the business of having to make better choices. And so now, one of the cool things, one of the side effects we didn't count on, it's really made recruiting and retention a lot easier. We have about 50 full-time employees. And whenever we open a position today, because of that that benefit of a six-hour workday, we pay people full-time for a six-hour workday. I mean, we get literally hundreds of applicants, so it's been a surprising and fun thing.
0: Yeah, it's really amazing what can happen when you really do lead from
1: that uh,
0: that place of heart, you know, along with the, the you know the tactical and the thinking piece. So helpful. Thank you so much for sharing all this. So the book is "Win at Work and Succeed at Life." And you have put together a ton of resources for folks, Michael, that they can dive in more on. Would you mind sharing that? I'll link it up in the
1: episode notes and also our weekly guide too. Absolutely. We've got a special website that we've developed called winandsucceedbook.com forward slash coaching, just for your audience, Dave. So winandsucceedbook.com forward slash coaching. And there we have about $500 worth of free resources, videos, and A lot of cool things that'll help you implement this so that you can get the double win. And again, that's winning at work and succeeding at life, but get that double win for yourself. And one of my favorite things that we have there is a downloadable cheat sheet that basically goes through the five principles that we talk about in the book to overcome this cult of overwork so that you can actually achieve the double win.
0: Well, I would invite folks to take that step. We've only really talked about one of the principles from the book. There's four others that will be really useful to you. If you, like us, (laughs) Michael and I have struggled with this in the past of finding that balance, it's a really great starting point to begin that journey. Michael Hyatt is the author with Megan Hyatt of Win at Work and Succeed at Life, Five Principles to Free Yourself from the Cult of Overwork. Michael, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having me on. If you found this conversation useful with Michael, several related episodes I'd also recommend. One of them is episode 315, How to Transcend Work-Life Balance with my friend Scott Barlow. Scott and I, in that conversation, talked about the myth of balance that most of us experience in our lives. We certainly have heard to aim for that balance, and yet, really, it is more about integration, especially with the lives and work that most of us engage in. These days, we talked about that distinction on episode 315, not necessarily aiming for balance each day, but how do we integrate both work and life well? A good complement to this conversation, of course. I'd also recommend episode 400, How to Reclaim Conversation. My guest on that episode was Cal Newport. I've been a fan of his work for many years. He has done a lot of work in the past in encouraging us to set aside our digital lives a bit, and in fact, uh, one of his books on digital minimalism. We talked about that in detail on episode 400. Yes, how do we use technology well, but also how do we keep it in its place in order to engage in some of the human aspects of what matters most? And then I'd recommend episode 417, Finding Joy Through Intentional Choices. On that episode, Bonnie and I talked about some of the intentional choices we have made, in the past and currently, on saying no. Uh, Many of you mentioned how useful that conversation was to you. It's uh, not a conversation about what we say yes to. It's a conversation about what are the things in our personal and professional lives that we intentionally say no to, and of course, very much in the spirit of this conversation as well. Again, that's episode 417. And I know, finally, that many of you are fans of Michael's work and have been for years. He's been on the show uh, three times now, I think, and the last time he was on, not related to this conversation, but also a tremendously important topic. Topic for leaders episode 482 how to sell your vision that was last year michael of course has had tons of experience doing this throughout his career And if you are a leader right now who is creating a vision and perhaps trying to get traction within the larger organization on the vision for your team or your department, episode 482 is a must-listen for you, step-by-step how to sell your vision (laughs) inside the organization. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you have not yet set up your free membership on the website, you're missing out on one of the biggest benefits to leverage the value of our site because you can then search the entire library by topic. We do have a topic for work-life integration, also one under personal leadership, which this episode is filed under both but many other episodes that we've aired over the years that will support you in both those areas, plus a ton more. So if you, like me, tend to go looking for episodes on podcasts that are specific to something you're dealing with right now, whether it be difficult conversations or how to give feedback or coaching skills, all of those are topics in our library. Set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. You will have access immediately to all of that, Plus a ton more, including all the free audio courses, the member casts, my book and interview notes, including the notes from this interview with Michael and the highlights that uh, I thought were most relevant from... What we discussed today in this conversation. All of that available to you at coachingforleaders.com. Just set up your free membership and you will be off and running. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Greg McEwen back to the show. He is the best selling author of Essentialism, and Greg has a new book coming out called Effortless. Next week, a conversation with him about how to stop trying so hard. It could follow up to this episode, actually. See you for that conversation with Greg McEwen on Monday. Take care, everyone.